so there there were these people who were publishing Dracula, republishing, you know, the Bram Stoker book. Um, yeah. Uh, right, if it's either um, a chapter a day or a chapter a week or something, and Tumblr have gone mad for this for reasons I don't understand. Um, but in Victorian times, that's how books were written. They're all written chapter by chapter and published in a magazine, well, a chapter a month. Also, in Victorian times, people used Tumblr. Carry on. <laughs> they did. Victor- <laughs> Vic- Victorian Tumblr, but then they banned all the shots of ankles and everyone stopped using it. But <laughs> so. <laughs> Howdy ho, everybody, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 47 of Bad Voltage. We hope you're doing very, 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 very well. A lot of it. Um, I'm joined here with my two compadres, uh, Mr. Stuart Ian Langridge. Correct. And Mr. Jeremy. He didn't think of anything, did you? He didn't think you of anything, of, in again. Fact, zero things. All right, Jeremy Ian Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Ian Garcia, yeah. we can go for that. Did we actually figure out, ever figure out his middle name? No. It's still a mystery, isn't no, it? No, he has very carefully not told us. I'm sure it's point. Beyonce. It's got to be Beyonce. Hence the hilarity. Shall I tell you what I think it is? Jeremy Garcia. Jeremy, Jeremy Garcia Garcia. <laughs> yes, that's what I think his name is. <laughs> I'll be right back. Just need to put in a quick passport change. <laughs> it's hyphenated. <laughs> oh, I- <laughs> it's hyphenated. Well, make sure you check the expiration date, just like George Castro. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's, a couple of people now this has happened to recently. Um, uh, a mate of mine um, had to uh, get his passport redone. He meant to do it in January, just didn't think about it. And then it turned out that people won't let you travel when you're within three or six months of it running out. And it's been with the passport office now for like 10, 11 weeks, and it's still not back. So we had to cancel a conference. Oh, no. Wow. I know, and he's and he's like, "Where's my passport?" And they were like, "Oh, we're we're backed up because of I don't know COVID or something." You're like, "You're a bunch of lazy snipes." Do the passport. <laughs> so I've checked mine about six times, and I'm sitting there going, "I know mine runs out in 2025," and I checked it a bunch anyway, just on the off chance. Mine's not that far off from six months. Actually, I do have to do it. Do it. Like get on that soon. immediately. Yeah, a friend of mine who lives here in in my town. Uh, brilliant guitarist, joined a very well-known metal band uh, as a touring guitarist Ooh. just before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, if I guess, will you tell jo- me? Yes. Which means it's not Anthrax or something then. Not Anthrax. <laughs> am I going to have heard of them? Uh, when I say very well-known... Right, you mean you I, know I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean partially well-known <laughs> right, to heavy gonna, metal people. I was going to say, the, uh, I'm assuming the reason I'm allowed to guess is because it's not Megadeth or something. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, actually, I probably shouldn't say who it is because well, I don't think he wants to share in public. But anyway, Baron Carter. That's what I it's said. not Baron Carter. No, 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 no. No, we said touring metal band, <laughs> uh, and also well known. Uh, anyway, no, he so he joined the band, and his first gig was playing a massive festival in Hol- in Holland just before the pandemic. Pandemic happened. His green card was about to run out. Filed it urgently, and it and it took two years for him to get his green card renewed. Couldn't leave the country. What and, and had to le- had to leave the band. This band is based in the oh, UK. Wow. No. Yeah. Worth. Poor guy. He's such a lovely guy as well. So yeah. The moral of this show is: 
check your documentation and submit it early. <laughs> Everything's yeah. backed up. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that horrific. Oh no. Yeah. I felt so bad for him because he's he's such a good guitarist and such a lovely guy. So anyway. All right. Let's go on to brighter, brighter waters. We are going to do some news today. Um, Mr. Langridge, why don't you start us off with something interesting? Okay, so um a small thing to begin with, just because we've talked about this before and I thought it was interesting. Um everything's gonna be USB type C now. The EU are actually <sighs> legislating it finally. So uh, this is everything. I mean, um, laptops are going to be delayed a bit, but but I think a lot of laptops are now, and everyone's planning to be. So by twenty twenty four, everything's going to be USB Type C. So this means this means. So just to get into the specifics, this means that if you want to sell a device in Europe, it has to have at least one USB port. And is that how it works? If um, so if it's wired, if it if it does wired charging at all, and it's not something weird. So if it's, they've actually got a list, which is smartphones, tablets, e-readers, earbuds, digital cameras, headphones, headsets, handheld video game consoles, and portable speakers. All the major stuff, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you make like some little light-up snowman or something, it doesn't have to be USB Type-C. But <laughs> if you're doing any kind of semi-standard piece of computer-related consumer electronics, it has to be USB Type-C. Uh, well, and it charges wired. You can make it wireless, and then this doesn't apply. You don't have to add wired charging if you don't have it. Wow, that's kind of that's, that's, it's it's kind of amazing. It's that interesting they, that they've passed this. Yeah, I'm curious have, what we, you think about uh, the any government ag- agency regulating to the point of uh, requiring a very specific protocol on all. I hardware. know. Yeah, uh, I thought it was a good idea the last time it happened. Um, I mean, when we talked about USB Type-C before, I was all against the idea of people pushing for it because most of my devices weren't. But that was like five years ago. And since th- uh, you two were both not basically everything we own is USB-C already, which just goes to show you how little I buy consume hardware. <laughs> but now everything <laughs> I own is USB Type-C with the exception of the iPhone. And Apple will either make it USB Type-C or they'll just supply an adapter. You know, and from my point of view, this is this sort of thing is a public service because it means that you don't have to have loads of extra cables and e-waste. You know, it's it's a good thing. It means you can assume a a baseline level of stuff, which is good. It's one of those things. I always find these kinds of news stories fascinating because, on one hand, like. In this specific instance with USB-C, it makes eminent sense, right? Yeah. Like, to, to all the points you just outlined, it does make me feel a bit weird that this bureaucratic organization just can mandate something like that. Because while this instance makes sense, you know, what if something else that didn't make sense and then they mandated but that? It almost seems like this forever sticks us with USB-C, and let, let me give you my reasoning why. Everything used to be USB, the micro B terrible everyone acknowledged it was terrible the usb consortium is broken to a level that it never got fixed for years and years and years and years and years despite everyone agreeing it was terrible if it was mandated at the time that everything had to have a a micro usb port would apple have ever done lightning which is what lit the fire for usb consortium to actually finally do a thing okay so that seems like a really good argument if it wasn't for the fact that it was mandated that everything needed the micro usb port and what apple did was they put an adapter in the iphone box and people built usb-c stuff anyway 
There was an EU mandate that everything yeah. had to have a micro USB cable yeah. uh, port. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Because this is what got rid of. Do you remember the things? I've literally got. Um, <laughs> I can see Jeremy Googling as we speak. Yeah, no, it's real. <laughs> it's not that he's questioning your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, do you, you remember the little thing you used to keep in the inside pocket of your coat or in your laptop bag or whatever, where it had 25 different mobile phone connectors on it? Yep. I've li- I have one with a Bitnami logo on it. I know. <laughs> it's yeah. the one piece of merchandise that I ever use from a company. Right. I found it like a week ago and went, oh my God, here it is in the pocket of this jacket I've worn since 2006. But, <laughs> but, but the yeah. reason why that was, that was a popular gadget was because it had USB-C on it. Yeah. Well, and everything no, else but, only but had the, micro USB. But the reason they mandated micro USB for charging was precisely to get around the fact that every mobile phone manufacturer just made up their own thing in, like, 2003 or whatever. And so they said, no, you've got to charge this. And Apple put a uh, thing. I, I think the point is that after a while, I don't know whether they repealed it or whether they just stopped enforcing it because everyone was kind of on board anyway. Uh, that mandate was substantially different than this one. That was basically only cell phones, and it was because every cell phone manufacturer had their own janky, proprietary, slightly different shaped charger. But that's exactly the case with laptops right now. Exactly the case. And on mobile phones, the problem is largely solved. The goal here is not to stop, uh, it's to stop laptop manufacturers inventing their own thing, which they keep doing, but it's also to get people to move on from micro USB to USB-C. And largely, if you're a sensible consumer electronics manufacturer, you're doing this anyway, so there's no need for the mandate. So I don't... Who's not... Who doesn't... Who objects to this? Not someone who objects to the overreach of government power or some bollocks. Who objects to the fact that people want this? I'm just suspicious... I'm suspect that we want government regulating specific implementation details and technology is it's more conceptually i don't think it's an issue with usbc per se i think it's more of the general pattern of governments mandating technology decisions which like to jeremy's point technology keeps growing and getting better and like i say we had this before yes it was just for cell phones but we had it and what it did was it got people to move on and then when people brought out USB-C charging cell phones, they didn't get busted by the EU for it, right? And so I don't see that it's going to stop experimentation. There is nothing stopping you putting an adapter in the box because that's exactly what Apple did last time, and it's quite possible it's what they'll do this time because if they switch to USB-C, they obsolete every lightning connector. This is exactly the same when they went from 30-pin to lightning, and everyone bitched about the fact that they had a little plug-in thing changing foundational things like this it turns out painful and takes years yeah and part, yeah. And part one of the reasons go- i'm suspicious of governments regulating it so yeah. uh, you see my opinion on that is the other way around part of the reason yeah yes you sacrifice someone's ability to innovate in connectors sure but what it stops a company doing is innovating in connectors and then locking you into some damn connector so all your equipment becomes obsolete when they decide to change yeah, but what if they'd mandated that Windows had to be shipped with every machine in Europe? Then Linux would never have happened. Pretty much did mandate that, dude. <laughs> they didn't mandate it. They never mandated that Windows had to run on every machine sold on a computer in Europe. Sure, the government didn't. Microsoft did. Did it make a difference? No, people built well, the I'm thing anyway. I'm not talking anyway. about Microsoft. I'm talking about governments. What difference do you make? I mean, Microsoft, it's not... 
unexpected that Microsoft want Windows to be shipped in every machine. So <laughs> you're, you're talking about the difference between about- a de jour and a de facto thing, but it doesn't really matter, does it? I think it massively matters because Why? because without turning in this into a broader question of the role of governments, in my mind, I, I see the purpose of governments provide making sure that. Uh, where they regulate things are in the interests of like, you know, the safety and the equity of, of their citizens, right? Um, absolutely, you know. But my worry about when they get into, to Jeremy's point about getting into specific implementation details like USB-C is that th- the next new thing is going to kind of come along. And generally, the way the world works is that the market tends to figure its its way out. There's a reason why USB-C has become popular in recent years is because consumers are generally preferring it. You have specific holdouts like Apple, who've already said that they're going to put USB-C on the iPhone 14, I think it is, right? So... To me, the market can figure this and stuff out. I don't that know way why in, in laptops ahead of everyone else, right? And I don't. I just don't know why a government needs to mandate this. Uh, I'm not sure what the real benefit of this is. I mean, so having people ha- people having to have fewer cables doesn't seem like enough of a reason to it for me. If there was a safety issue, like if 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 you put lightning on a device and it burst into flames, I could understand it, right? But there isn't really a safety issue here. It's more of a convenience matter. That's my only concern. And I just worry that when governments mandate things, it makes it really hard for people to step beyond that and break the stranglehold, right? That's the whole point of open source. Open source was able to break the stranglehold that the industry had us in back in the in the mid-90s. Was it? Yeah. I mean, think back what it was like when we first got into Linux and open source. Yeah, I, I remember the only people who used Linux on their desktop were people who used to hang out in pubs and talk about that and nothing else, and nothing has changed. <laughs> oh no, none of us are using it now. No, I'm talking about like, look, back then, of course, it was massive, big, proprietary Unix systems on servers and Windows and the desktop. Now, Linux didn't win the Windows desktop world, but it certainly has won the client-side world with Android, and the server is absolutely being won by Linux. So the fact that you had these big, bulky entities out there, open source was able to break through. And I think part of the reason why is because there wasn't any government mandates that said that it, that, that you have to run a specific thing. So, so, so just so I understand this, when um, governments mandated that you had to use open document formats, specifically the open document format, was that a bad thing? I thought we thought that was a good idea. We wanted to break the power of Microsoft Office, and no, so well, governments that, that, mandated but, ODF. No, but, no, no. At no point did we. At no point did anyone say, or no one in our camp. At no point did anyone say that's bad idea because you're preventing people innovating in document formats. What we want people to do was no, stop no. bloody innovating. I, in think, document I think we're talking formats. about two different things because I don't. I, I, <laughs> I, I would, I would object against open document format being mandated for literally everybody. But open document format was mandated for government computers. And absolutely, it should be mandated because that is an open interchangeable document format, right? I get that. With the intention of that spreading out so everyone has to adopt it, right? Don't tell me that... Well, no, but it would, it would have been like saying you cannot release a word, uh, an off, any kind of office suite that didn't support it, which they, like, no one ever suggested that. Right. No one ever suggested that. Fair enough. It wasn't you can't sell an office suite that doesn't support ODF. It was that if you want to be installed on government computers, your office suite must support ODF, which are two way different things. 
And I see the, the obvious intention behind this kind of thing is you make it so everyone is obliged to be able to read this with the intention of making sure that it grows out there in the market. It's not like anyone would have been happy with the idea that there was a government document format and there was an everyone else document format and the two things were different. If the world had ended up like that, that would be rubbish. And no, no one wants that. <laughs> but I remember the reason why there was there were people advocating for a manda- mandating open document format in government is because public money is being used to procure those technology services. Get and off. the view was, it's no, it's absolutely the case. Sure, but that wasn't actually the reason we wanted it to win. It really wasn't. What we wanted was that Microsoft wouldn't be able to just own document formats forever. We wanted open source out there. Sure, we had reasons about government money as what's being spent, but that's not actually what we were asking for. No, but I'd say two things. One is, has my mindset changed from when I was from when I was nineteen and now? <laughs> Fucking, of course it has, right? You know. But the second thing is, I don't ever remember speaking personally ever having of the view that we should force open document format on people or we should force Linux on people. I think what we were all wanting was to just be able to get into the game, right? And and uh, all uh, and the, most of the arguments around open document format being mandated within government was to reduce vendor lock-in. And a, a big chunk of that was because if you have vendor lock-in, then, then your government is dependent on software that's controlled by a corporation. Right. So I think that was at least that was my viewpoint. Now, other people may have different viewpoints. So I will say I thought this segment would last minutes. 10 seconds. seconds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought it's I'd the go classic hey, bad voltage formula. USB type C and you lot will go good. Next, next section. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. What's next? Jeremy, do you want to s- serve something fresh and hot for us to savor over? Sure. So uh, there seems to be a little bit of a fracas over here between Firefox and Chrome and some of the browser uh, extension. Uh, th- and I, I wanted to get your opinion, because I don't know a lot about this space. So curious if this is just people grousing or if there's an actual te- uh, technology or, or culture issue here. So uh, I'm, I'm reading from an article that we will link to in the show notes. It says, the rupture center- centers on a feature called web request, commonly used in ad blockers and crucial for any system that looks to block off a domain wholesale. Google has long held security concerns about web request and has worked to cut it out of the most recent extension standard, which is calling Manifest V3. So for a little bit of implementation detail, just so everyone has some context on what this is, since I definitely did not, uh, under the current available specification, which is uh, Manifest V2, browser extensions can use an API feature called Web Request to observe traffic between the browser and a website and to modify or block requests to certain domains. They give an example here that is a very simple, basically put all these URLs into an array and if there's a match, block the URL. Uh, so it says the Web Request feature is powerful and flexible and can be used for both good and bad Bad purposes. Ad blocking extensions use the feature to block incoming and outgoing traffic between certain domains and users' browser. In particular, they block domains that will load ads and stop information from being sent to the browser. And then it says, uh, under the new specification, the blocking version of the web request API has been removed and replaced with an API called declarative net request, which instead of monitoring all data in a network request, uh, the new API forces extension makers to specify rules in advance about how certain types of traffic should be handled, and the extension is able to form a more narrow set of actions when a rule is triggered. And then it notes that Adblock Plus, a very popular ad blocker, has come out in favor of MP MV3, uh, although they note that the that extension has a financial relationship with Google. 
So all that said, what's actually going on here, since this is a space you follow closely? Right. So, uh, this is going to be the Ollie North description of <laughs> what WebRequest does, right? It's uh, uh, It'll explain what's going on, but don't necessarily try it on a Google Chrome engineer. Or something. That <laughs> seems seems reasonable. But but from a very high level perspective, the way it works at the moment is if you're writing an extension that wants to um, affect someone's access to the web, so to do things like ad blocking, for example, um, you can basically say run this code on every web request. Right when when someone requests a URL. Whether that's a page or a thing within that page, like a, a JavaScript file or an image or whatever, um, the code in your extension can look at the outgoing request and the response coming back and then do whatever it wants. It can go, right, I'm going to uh, alter the content that's coming back. I'm going to alter the content that's being sent out. I'm go- I can block it entirely, whatever. Okay. There are good things and bad things about this. The good thing about it is that the code can do whatever you want. with So it's very, very flexible. Um, so it gives you the option of not only blocking based on things like the URL, but you can also block based on what's in the content. If you want to write an extension which blocks all pages which contain the word Jono, or which patch in the words Jono's World of Metal at the top of a page, you can do that. Right? That is, um, and some ad blockers and things do work like that. So, um, Ghostery, for example, uh, and I believe the FF Privacy Badger do a lot of inspection of the content that's coming back. They're not just a big list of blockable URLs. The downsides with this are two. The first one is that it's quite slow because you have to run some code that's been written by some random bod who built an extension you liked on every single request. Um, not only is that a bit slow, but it also, if you've got a slow extension installed, it slightly degrades the quality of the web as a whole right and the google people take a partially sensible and partially paternalistic attitude to web performance in that there's a lot of we really want the web to offer really really great performance which is great but there's also a little bit of and if you're not really good at providing web performance maybe we'll take over a little bit for you to make sure that the web performance is good, even if you're not paying enough attention to it. And that leads to things like AMP. Which we've we've discussed at length in this very podcast. We, we have. Discussed, we have discussed, <laughs> and, uh, but this is not an AMP thing, but it's that mindset of then going, we want the web to be super-duper performant, so the way we'll do that is we'll build a thing in which we hoist pages off of newspaper websites onto our own domain and make that really fast, right? Same mentality. The second reason that the web request stuff is a problem is that because you can alter a page, there's nothing stopping you writing an extension which alters the page in ways that you, the user, don't realise it's doing and might not want. If you wanted to write something which injects something into the page which steals your credit card details when you type them in, an extension can do that. Now, when you install an extension, it pops up a thing saying what it's going to do, but a whole bunch of them say it needs access to all of your shit in all of your tabs. And you don't get the option of going, no. Well, sorry, that's not true. You do get the option of going, no, which is uninstall the extension. But there's no more black and white than that. It's like Android permissions used to be right at the beginning. Where it's like, this thing can do all the things. And your only option was, <laughs> then I won't install the app, right? And things things got a bit more granular over time. So it became, this thing wants access to your contacts. 
give it a contact that it's allowed. So it asks you every time rather than asking once it install time. Extensions are still very, very much in that grant it all permissions kind of vibe. Plus, you probably wouldn't want an extension to be asking you, do you want to let it fiddle with this web request for every web request you make? Because every page makes like 200. So, so Google's proposal for the way this should work is what they call declarative net request, which boiling it down and oversimplifying to a point where our hypothetical <laughs> Chrome engineer would be quite cross with me for this. In essence, you get to go, here are a list of URLs or URL regular expressions. You can block stuff from that. And that's all you can do. You can no longer do content inspection. You can no longer um, decide to block this thing if you've blocked, if you let through four others from that domain in the last 15 minutes. Well, you, you basically, you don't get to run code. That's why it's called declarative net request rather than net request. Now, again, I am massively oversimplifying, but Google's approach is, look, we get... <laughs> attempting to summarize the vibe I get from Google, which is not what they think the vibe is. The vibe they seem to be projecting is, look, we let you lot have this extremely powerful tool, and what you did with it was buggered up everyone's performance. So now we've decided mostly you can't be trusted. So what we're going to do is we're going to take it away, and we're going to give you a thing which solves 90% of the use case, no problem. And then we're going to work with those of you it doesn't solve to see what we can do about it. But what we're not going to do is let you run arbitrary JavaScript for every request. If you don't like it, you know. It does seem to me then there is a legitimate security and performance concern that they are addressing. Like it's not completely yes, made yeah. up, despite it aligning with their business values in, in a very direct way. So what what is your opinion? This is a good decision and you are supportive or this is not a good decision? Google have a notable tendency to think up stuff uh, for how they want the web to change, which has five reasons for it happening or four reasons for it happening or whatever. And then they state three of them. And the last one, which is this is great for our business model and not that great for other people's business model, goes unstated. But it kind of seems to be there, right? AMP was like that. Flock was like that. And... I don't even blame them for coming up with stuff which is conveniently good for them. It's that they always try to come off like it's an accident. <laughs> it's like, oh, goodness, is this particularly good for us and not that good for people who aren't us? Crikey, we had no idea. Goodness, well, if we'd realised that, we'd have changed it, but we're a bit too far into the process now. Better get on with it. So, I think on balance... I'd rather have the ability to run the code and take the performance hit. I can see how someone might fall down on the other side of that. It is unfortunate that the people who fall down on the other side of that are the people who get to decide what's in the biggest browser. But they are listening. I mean, this discussion has been going on for years, literally years at this point. Google proposed this some time ago v3 and there are legitimate reasons to want to do it as you say jeremy there are legitimate reasons to not want to do it so the fact that they managed to get adblock plus on board because their model is basically we provide you with a great big list of urls anyway that's how their thing works so they're like yeah this is fine for us you know kind of ghostry 
not so fine with it. And I'll give you another example of something which I found very useful on Android, and I just flat can't do on my iPhone, which is really annoying, and it's for this reason, again. Um, one of the reasons I use the Brave browser as my default on Android is that I can block JavaScript on a per-site basis. So what that means is you go to a website and if it, you know, fine, they give you a cookie pop-up because you're here or whatever, or they, you know, they scroll a little bit when stuff loads in, that's okay. But sites, if they're obnoxious at me or they give me a cookie pop-up where I have to go dig around for the reject button, or if I'm trying to view something and then a video sort of scrolls up from the bottom and covers the text or something, right? You get one chance and if you spend that one chance, you have sacrificed your permission to run JavaScript on my device. Boom, gone. At that point, no ads for you right <laughs> you i just turn off javascript on your site done i flat cannot do that on my iphone and it's really bloody annoying and i thought right i'm going to build a safari extension to do this don't know how how i even compile this on ubuntu but i'll work it out i'll have a look and you <laughs> and the reason you can't do it is because they've taken away the url the, sorry they've taken away the api that let, that lets you do this essentially the way um JavaScript blocking on a per-site basis works is that you have an extension which looks at the site, uh, the, the the data that's coming in, and then injects into it um, a declaration, no JavaScript in this site. And then the browser just goes, okay, I won't run any of the JavaScript. Done. You can't do that in Safari because the API that lets you inspect a web request and then inject stuff into it has gone away. And... They've done that for the same kind of reason that Google have. That, that, uh, their concern is about performance and security. And sure, um, there are legitimate reasons to not want that. And Safari has never had it. Right? Safari has extensions on iOS, which Chrome does not on Android. Firefox does on Android. Um, but this is this is genuinely infuriating from my point of view that this was a real feature that i had on android i do not have on ios and i can't get it now so this is because the apple browser bad and whatever but leave that to one side this is a real effect which i think would be better for people if we built a world in which people would just encourage someone's annoying someone's annoying website just turn off javascript on that website people would stop being annoying pretty quick <laughs> right <laughs> um so, and I, so I don't like the fact that Google are increasingly moving from a, I mean, I, okay, so this is a bit strained, but this to me feels a bit like the argument you were making five minutes ago, Jono, that this is Google deciding what's best for you and removing your ability to innovate in what's best because they go, well, we've really thought up the way you need to do this and that we've mandated that that's all you're allowed to do. So very quick question. This this one also went longer than I thought it would. So we're we're on. A, sorry, we're so on a you, roll got, you I'm sure you weren't expecting a ten minute without pause for breath explanation of this. <laughs> no, I, I kind of was. Um, you, you mentioned two specific things: AMP and Flock, both of which were not successful. AMP lasted yep. a little bit longer than Flock did. Both eventually did get rolled back, though. Is are you making the the argument then by using those two examples that you believe? v3 will eventually include something like the original functionality or did you just happen to use those two examples i use them more as examples of overreach than rolled back things <laughs> oh sorry no i use I them think more one as led to of, the other but, though so it, yeah, it, i guess uh, yeah. it's your contention that this overreach will eventually get rolled back or, yeah i no. don't know I mean, so they're yeah they're examples of paternalism i suppose i 
the fact that Google are still discussing this is encouraging on that front because there's nothing stopping them just going, we're doing it, right? Yeah. Which is what Apple did with Safari. They just went, yeah, you can't have this. Yes. We're not We're not even going to listen to opinions about whether you should have it. Um, so Google could do that, and they aren't doing it. They do seem to want to solve this, but they seem to want to solve it while not giving us the ability to do to you know, to run arbitrary code in a web request. And people are like, that's what we need. Sure, you can keep adding new ways of creating rules which do the thing you want, but then you're just, you're making it possible to build ghostery, but not ghost the next ghostery. Got it. Okay. You know? Uh, so, you know, oh, God. I was going to say, this is <laughs> no, the ahead, longest Jeremy. we haven't heard Jono's voice in an episode he was in potentially ever, so. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> that was... Uh... I was doing my hair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't have a lot to comment here, obviously. Uh, although one thing I did want to say was, um, Ak, you mentioned that you're using Brave. Um, I would actually quite I, like to I do... I was on Android. On Android. I still am on iOS, but for a different reason, which I'll explain if you like. I'd, 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 I'd quite like to do um, a segment on a show about Brave because I was <laughs> reading into them. I had, honestly hadn't really thought about Brave, and I was looking into them like last week, I think it was. Um, because I thought, oh, yeah, that browser, I've never used it myself. And I know that obviously the focus on privacy and all the rest of it, but it's interesting um, how they've got this whole, like, basic attention token thing. I, um, part of the reason, the, yeah, it's not the only... We should it, talk about the this. The reason I moved is not only because I moved to iOS, right? Right. But I'd like to, <laughs> I, I think that's an interesting business model for a company that we should talk about. It's fascinating what they're doing, but I don't know enough about it, and I'm sure you know a lot more about it than I do, Axe, so uh, mm. maybe we'll talk about that Add it to show. the planning doc, or we will forget, because yeah, I think it is an interesting, yeah. it is an interesting topic. Write it, write, yeah. write it in the list at the top. The thing I use it for at the moment is I can sort of do what I'm talking about, because I have Brave installed, and I've just disabled JavaScript in it entirely, which means that if I want to read a thing and it's being annoying, I share it, and then share it to Brave and read it there. Got it. Oh. Um, so, Google, Google News attempting to... <laughs> yeah, this is all part of the conversation that we yeah, have about yeah, yeah. I, that's That in itself is interesting. We should talk more about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I, let's change gears here completely. Now I have a little bit of a question for, for you, Mr. Bacon. Yes. Uh, as a musician who has produced music where you would ideally, I, I imagine, someday like to make money even if it wasn't your main vocation. Uh, w- w- one way to do that these days is, is clearly Spotify. And yep. I, I thought it was interesting-ish when they really pushed into podcasts, because when they went into podcasting, they went in pretty big, hundreds of millions of dollars into multiple acquisitions. And uh, clearly, if you're listening to podcasts, you are not listening to music. So it's a fundamental step change in their in their business model and approach. Now they're saying they also want to get heavily into audiobooks, which is, again, not music. So I'm curious, do you see this as Spotify is clearly one of the largest streaming platforms, and especially one of the largest streaming platforms from a player whose main reason for existing is a streaming platform. So like Google has one and Apple has one, but it's part of a broader ecosystem play where Spotify used to like all they did was music. So I'm curious what you think of this shift. And if you think this is a signal that a lot of people for a long time said a music streaming service was not a viable business model long term is this an acknowledgement or that is, is this something else like curious to just get your overall i'll take on it yeah it's interesting uh to me because spotify specifically is um very controversial in the musician community um 
for probably obvious reasons, right? Is that you put your music up there and each stream gets zero point zero 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 one of a penny or something like that. <laughs> I don't even think it's that much, man. I think you're like two orders of magnitude out. <laughs> um and um you know, so for example, with my, with my band Baron Carter, I use a service called CD Baby, which is a distributor. So I upload the music there, and then CD Baby pay them like eighty dollars or whatever, and they distribute it to all of the different networks, Spotify and Apple Music and whatever else. And then I can see inside of CD Baby what my sales are in each of these different areas, and you don't see a lot of Spotify revenue. Now, a lot of musicians grouse and complain about spotify because they believe it's killed the revenue stream for for music which to a reasonable extent it has people don't buy cds anymore but that's not spotify's fault that's the fault of just the internet right and um and everybody complained everybody everybody complained to um about metallica when they you know when they sued napster but to be fair to lars ulrich annoying as he is this was kind of what he was talking about. Basically, what's happened is what Lars Ulrich was worried about. However, the thing that I think a lot of musicians don't reflect is exactly what I'm experiencing right now with my band, Baron Carter, which is when I was in my band in the UK before all of this, the only way to reasonably be successful in music was to get a record deal. So a very small number of people basically dictated what you get to listen to. Um, and you could be a local band and print burn CDs and CDRs and go out to shows and all the rest of it. But now with a click of a button, I can distribute my music everywhere and it makes it easier for bands to be able to actually make an impact and, and, and to find new audiences. So streaming has been good for that. In my mind, the audiobook thing is probably a way in which the, the is, is a way in which Spotify can, I imagine it's easier for them to sell an audiobook or to stream an audiobook and have less grief from authors than it is from musicians. Because musicians are just harder done by than authors. Authors make more money than musicians, as a, on average, I would suspect, because the average amount of money made by musicians is zero dollars. <laughs> Whereas the average amount of mu- money probably made by the average author is probably going to be, you know, a couple of thousand, maybe not much. Oh, uh, what? Yeah. Why? I, I is your opinion that the average amount of money made by musicians with a record deal is zero dollars? No, 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 no. I think the average amount of money, averaging out all musicians on the planet, um, is probably not much above zero dollars. Yeah, but I think that's the same for people who write things. People with a publishing deal make make money, but people with a record deal make money. If you if you write a book and have it published, right? So it's available for people. So to 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 do two comparisons here, right? Um if I was to put out an an album and put it onto Spotify and all the networks, right? Or if I was to create uh self-publish my own book and put it do it through Kindle Direct Publishing. I believe I'll make more money through Kindle Direct Publishing than I will through money going on on these different places. Oh man, I sure I, I'm prepared to believe that you believe that. Um I don't I'm prepared I, to believe that you believe that. Yeah. What I, I love the energy. I, I am prepared to believe that now, you believe I, that you, you I don't believe it, but equally I haven't got any evidence either. In fact, we both have, I would guess, at a conservative estimate, possibly a negative amount of evidence for this. But I think it'd be a really interesting test. I have evidence. Do you? By the Lord Harry? 
I've written five books and I've put out a bunch of albums. I have direct evidence. I've made a lot more money from books than albums. <laughs> I can tell you that. For- you got your own publishing deal? Yeah. That's not the same thing at all. And with and with good publishers, too. Yeah, to, absolutely, to be, right? To- <laughs> I, I, I would suggest that you had better publishers by comparison with other publishers than you had a record company by comparison with other record companies. I don't know how to say this in a way that's going to sound nice. So I'm just going to say it. <laughs> okay. and, and, and hope that certain people aren't listening. <laughs> right. So when you, said, when you said five books, you meant only five books, right? Uh, you don't get a lot of marketing support from publishers. Hmm. So what publishers will do is they'll, they'll print the book and like with your book, Ack, yeah, they'll yeah. print it and they, and, and they, and they make it available to sell online or they'll send it out to some bookshops. Reasonably with, with, with music, I, it's the, with, I'm doing the, the equivalent of that with CD Baby. I'm putting it out there. I just think that people are willing to go out and buy books and people aren't willing to go out and buy music. I see the reason I don't agree with you is imagine you are the 10th best selling record in the UK in one given week. How right. many records do you think you sold? I I don't know the answer to this, so I'm interested in your opinion. I know it. For, I know it for books. Such a right? bad voltage data point to ask right. a question I, I, to which you have no idea what the answer. You said that with such steely determination, <laughs> like you were leading to this bright. I, and then you're like, yeah, don't even have an order of magnitude guess. Just the, re- the reason I'm asking the question is I do know the answer for books. So it'd right. be interesting to compare them, but I don't know it yeah. for music. That's why instead of declaring the answer, I'm asking you because you know about music. I I, I don't know, but the, what I do know is that um, uh, you hear so, these like these these kind of like uh, I was going to say old wives' tales, but I'm guessing that's pretty politically incorrect. What's the equivalent of an old wives' tale now? Uh, in- there's got there, there's this whole class of. Phrases that I learned when I was a kid, which I'm trying not to say now. Now, like yeah, things exactly. like, um, so ignoring all the ones which are just obviously wrong. Things like yes. I don't have a dog in this fight. It occurred to me like nine months ago or something that I'm talking about dogs having fights. That's not a particularly nice thing, is it? Maybe I should think of something else to say. Yeah, and, like saying yeah. somebody went off the reservation is. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> like, know this is. How it's about, obviously racist when you hear it. How about we just stop saying stuff like that? Good idea. So I agree with you. Not an old wives' tale. Um, a a fallacious piece of history, or whatever we call it. Fallacious piece of history. There were that fallacious piece of history. So, um, uh, I, I would. I know that um, the vast majority of people consume music via streaming. There are some people right. who buy vinyl and CDs. It's it's a tiny proportion. So I, the difference, I think, is that it, the tenth most popular author in the uk a reasonable number of those sales will be ebooks audiobooks and print books by definition sure, yes uh, um mm. I, I, in, fact, in fact i would guarantee all of them would be them because there aren't any other, there aren't any other ways to get books <laughs> well yeah i mean i'm not i mean there may be streaming book services i don't know like apple like, books I don't no, know. Kindle, no, I mean, kindle unlimited or something kindle would be the equivalent yeah of i don't think kindle unlimited direct, is, a stream, is a streaming book service that would be something more like um so there there are these people who are publishing dracula Republishing, you know, the Bram Stoker book. Um, yeah. Uh, right, if it's either um, a chapter a day or a chapter a week or something, and Tumblr have gone mad for this for reasons I don't understand. Um, but in Victorian times, that's how books were written. They're all written chapter by chapter and published in a magazine, well, a chapter a month. Like, also, like, in Victorian times, people use Tumblr. Carry on. 
Yeah, they did. Victor- <laughs> Vic- Victorian tumble, but then they banned all the shots of ankles and everyone stopped using it. But <laughs> so, so the reason I bring this up is that I am told, and I'd need to actually get better stats for this, but I am told that on a bad week, you can be on the Sunday Times bestseller list 10th. Right, so the bottom of that list. So you're the tenth best selling book in that con- in the country for that week, and you might have only sold a couple of hundred copies. I think that's a fallacious tale of history. Well, it's it's a well disappointing number if it's even close to true. I went, oh man, really? Sounds I mean, like an sure. egg tale to me. Have, having yeah. done a bunch of having sold books, yeah, and going, hey, guess what? Earning out it only happens to about fifty percent of people. And look, if you manage to get up to sort of five or ten thousand, you're doing really well in our game. It's but then how many records do you sell? If you've got a record deal, but you're not, I don't know if you're Shed Seven or something. Because in my head, all you hear about is people with <laughs> platinum. De- I'm just trying to pick the most obscure band I can think of off the top of my head. I don't know why I'm picking Shed Seven. Skunk and Nancy. Skunk and Nancy. At least we're never going to get an email for the people in Skunk and Nancy or something like <laughs> that. But, right, so that's why you don't see that many. And you keep it at people with you know, gold discs or whatever. But then they're just... They are to, you know, you two are to music what Stephen King is to books, right? Well, it's, it's all, it's all <laughs> relative, isn't it? Like I, when I released People Powered, I, I was really going to have a go at the New York Times bestseller and yeah. managed to sell. And it's all based upon the and week the had, book comes you out. Harper Collins, right? Yeah. Was it Harper Collins? And, um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that week, I thought, I thought I was in for a chance. That week, we sold something like just under 3,000 copies that week. And yeah. um, I was like, ah, I might get on the I bottom I mean, that's of it. not bad. Not even eh? close. No, not even really? close. Really? Yeah, like, but it depends on like, you know, if you, it depends on the week and what books come out. Because obviously, if you've got a week when Hillary Clinton brings that book out, then everybody's buying that. Um, yeah. But if you, uh, you know, if it's Richard Simmons, if he brings a book out, then who cares? I don't even still alive. So, but, I, um, I'll tell you what, I would, I would love to, first of all, hear from people listening who know something about this. So if you're in publishing yes. or if you're in music yep. publishing um, and you have some sense of numbers and whether – I think, you know, you've got – Full top pro, Stephen King. Um, yep. You know, in, in book writing, Taylor Swift in music. And then you've got a class below that of professionals that their whole job is making music or writing books. Um, and we're probably only talking about fiction here, I think. Um, right. And then you've got a class below that of people who are doing this and they're making money at it, but it's not enough to sustain them. And then you got a class below that of people who aren't making any any money at it, but they're doing it anyway. They're playing gigs in pubs, or they're just playing guitar with their mates, or they're yep. they're writing uh, yep. fan fiction on OA3 or whatever it's called, um, rather than trying to get it published. And those four classes, in my head, feel about the same between music and authorship, except for the fact that I can think of loads of rich musicians, and I can think of hardly any rich authors. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's, I don't know. I can't, think of, I can't think of anyone who writes books and then smashes up hotels and, and like flies all over the world on jets. <laughs> well, I don't know. Last person that was Hunter S. Thompson and he's dead. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, we'll, 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 we'll see what happens. I mean, um, the, the I, with going back to Spotify, I, it makes oh, yeah, sense sorry, to me. That, that was a question at the beginning of this, wasn't yeah. there? <laughs> they, uh, I, sus- I suspect they will just go into anything audio. And potentially, I mean, I, they clearly want to be like a major, a major um, 
platform for media, but they are going to have to figure out this royalties issue. The problem with it is it's, it's, it's so prevalent. Um, and like when I look at the data between all the networks that Baron Carter's on, like the vast majority of it is people listening on Spotify. Like the rest is not even close. Like not even. Is it it's when like, you say, when you say the vast majority? I'm sure it's the vast majority of listens and like listener yeah. minutes or whatever. Is it the vast majority of money? No, the money. There's more money elsewhere. And I think that's the point. Uh, the question is whether you want more people listening or you want fewer, more lucrative people to listen. Yeah. Because there's yeah, only yeah. one game in audiobooks, right? Audible is the only game in town. They didn't used to be, but they are it now. Is. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I can see Spotify breaking that. And the thing you said at the beginning, Jeremy, I thought was interesting was um, that if you're listening to audiobooks, you're not listening to music. And if you're listening to podcasts, you're not listening to music. So to some extent, they were cannibalizing their business. But equally, they're not going to convince people to listen to music instead of those things. And so up until now, if you decided to listen to audiobooks or podcasts, you were off their platform. But as someone looking for music, am I more likely to keep... So I am a Spotify subscriber. Well, okay. Yep. Am I more likely to give them money if they continue to invest in audiobooks and podcasts, which I don't listen to on their platform? Because eventually their music catalog is going to suffer. Why? Probably. Why? B- because you can focus on one thing intently and three things less intently. If music is the only thing you do, you have to be great at it. At least in theory, there's no reason why they couldn't have Spotify Music, Spotify Audiobooks, and Spotify Podcasts as three separate companies, which just happen to be in the same building. And the only point they have in common is a CEO at the top, right? Do go- did, does Google Search suffer because they're building self-driving cars? In a, in a world with unlimited resources, I, I believe this theory, but then we have to come back to reality. Yeah, but do, do, <laughs> does, does, does Google Search suffer because they're working on self-driving cars? Maybe how are you le- are you leaving for Bing? Well, no, I would say no. The, I would argue the opposite. If your car's driving itself, that's more time for you to search. <laughs> <laughs> like in the end, the only thing that you're competing for with these all these platforms are your attention, which is hard capped yeah. at 24 hours, and that's if you don't sleep. So let's say it's really yeah. hard capped at 18 hours. Anything that it competes for your time is competing against each other. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Searching us self-driving cars are not competing for your time. One's actually competing to give you more time. By the way, just real, very, very quickly, I actually pulled up the data. So this is just Baron Carter. I by the way, I can't believe you didn't say this. Released a new single, so go listen to the single. Plug your own stuff. Come on now. Yeah, yeah. It's called Lethality. Go check it out. We'll put it in the show notes right now. Yeah, we we will put it in the show notes, won't we? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jeremy. For (laughs) thank you, Jeremy, for we putting it in the we in the show notes. Uh, (laughs) So now now um, now I have to spend my Thursday morning shilling for your band. (laughs) I see how it. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. (laughs) Also, link to the pre-save link. Put put the links. uh, Put the links in the show notes, and I'll do it. If you don't do it. I don't have to. So. All right, that's fair. I will do that. <laughs> so, so back to the numbers. Um, yeah. So the numbers. So uh, you know, we a bit of context. Been around for about a year and a half. Three releases, all EPs, not full albums. Um, not a massively popular band. We have about fifteen hundred listeners uh, a month on Spotify. I don't know about the rest. Like I say, Spotify takes that up most seems of it. All right. Yeah, it's all right. And um, so in that time. The, mo- the amount of money we've made on Spotify is $116.69. That's the highest. In a year and a half. That's in a year and a half, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, hang on. Let me find the next one. 
The next one is... Uh, <laughs> oh, we, I, I, I wish I'd grabbed a screenshot of Jeremy a- doing the gangster handing out money thing. And I so much <laughs> wish I could make it the, like the, the screen picture for the poster the next image one is for the Apple, show. <laughs> the next one is Apple iTunes. Okay. Which is at $32.49. And like I say, we have... Steep cliff. Way fewer people listening Hang to on, Apple Hang on, but that's iTunes. still streaming. It's not purchases. Or is that I both? I think that might be. I think that might be purchasing. Oh, is this one of these yeah. things where it is both? You just haven't actually done any. Uh, actually, actually, I, I think that might be streaming because I think iTunes is where you buy it, right? And then it's broken down. iTunes is broken down by country. But next up is YouTube Music. Astonishingly, at thirty dollars really? fifty six cents. Does anyone use yeah. YouTube Music? Apparently so. And then next is iTunes UK. okay uh and then the next one is something called quo what is this quo buzz which apparently is a french streaming (laughs) streaming service what is this quo buzz i can't wait till you're saying i'm big in france now wow this is like david hasselhoff (laughs) french commercial music streaming download yeah we're we're huge in france (laughs) huge is (laughs) (laughs) that's <laughs> <laughs> so that's so, and then it breaks down so by you are else. grand in yeah. france well played yeah oh and amazon music actually amazon music just is a little bit more at 17 dollars than quo quo whatever well, it is see the other thing that i thought was interesting is and i don't know if this is the truth but i can see someone at spotify having thought of this that sure you've got musicians on board but when you're dealing with musicians, you're not actually dealing with musicians. You are mostly dealing with the legal people at their massive record label. Whereas if you're dealing with podcasters, they're just some random people who basically don't even have any idea that they're being exploited half of the time and aren't going to argue back for um, the ch- a change in the contract that you have for them. And they ha- and have no actual market power because if someone... Uh, parlophone decides they're going to leave they take all of their artists with them but if but a podcaster leaving the the whole point is you want everyone to be separate when you're dealing with them if you're spotify because then there's no collective bargaining power right right this doesn't apply to audiobooks because audiobooks are all published by existing publishers yeah but it does apply to podcasts so i feel like you i bet the term there's no comparison here but I bet if you could measure contract fairness on some kind of absolute scale, the terms that published musicians get are better than the terms that podcasters get. You don't think that the labels are arbitraging that difference and they, in the end, will be roughly the same? I, I, I'm sure the same thing you get. If you're the guy with the guitar, then yeah, I agree with you. Probably the, um, the label gets a better deal. They then keep all the upside. And then what was Steve Albini's thing about having to swim down a ditch made of shit or something? <laughs> he wrote just after, um, he wrote an, uh, an essay called The Problem with Music or words to that effect in like 1998. So this is the guy who he produced Nevermind for Nirvana and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and he wrote, uh, an, an article called, I believe it was called The Problem with Music and it described the process of being in a band and what it was like. Um, and where all the money went and who had it for people who didn't know anything about this. So, Johnny, you probably knew all of this, but right. most people didn't. And hearing a guy who actually knew about it, and he was describing um, 
the process of this person takes this cut and this person takes this cut and this person takes this cut and how you get to go on tour. But then when you go on tour, um, you know, uh, you make all this money, but then you've got to pay for your tour bus and you've got to pay for this and you've got to pay for venues. You've got to do all that. And so you get to the end of the year and yeah, you spent a year on tour, but you've actually only earned $11,000 that year. So you make the same amount of money as you would have done if you're working in a 7-Eleven. Um, but you yeah. got to, but you got to live on a tour bus for a year, so maybe that's a good enough trade off. I mean, yeah, yeah it's a lean life. Perhaps when you're 21, maybe not so much now. We're our age, but yeah, that yeah. was really yeah, yeah. that was a really interesting, enlightening thing into this. And I, I wish someone would write that now. Yeah, yeah. For what it's like to being in a band these days, when your goal is not playing grotty pubs until some slightly less grotty A&R man scores you a deal. You know what changed it for me was when I first moved to America um, and I set up my previous band, Severed Fifth. Um, I got to know Chris Contos, who, who played drums in Machine Head. Yep. And uh, he helped I the band remember. out quite a bit and is a nice guy. Anyway, we were out one day and he, we were, I forget, in like a pub or something like that. And he was telling us how to survive on the road. And he took us into the bathroom and he was showing us how you can buy a piece of like rubber tubing and stick it to the tap and shower yourself. And you have to look out for the particular type of like, you know, drain in certain bathrooms and gas stations. And that's how you shower yourself when you're on the road and how great it is. And I was thinking, that sounds fucking awful. Machine Head, they're a real band who actual people have heard of. And he was telling us about like, you know, you get to clean your clothes every four or five days. You have one pair of stage clothes. And it's like, this sound, no. This abs- is no. This is not happening. This is like being a professional <laughs> snooker player or something, right? The top nine guys make loads of money and everyone else has this crap living doing exhibition shows in, like, working men's <laughs> clubs or something. Yes. Man, good times that's right wow we're uh we've been gone for nearly an hour that was yeah. like the whole show we did two things i think or three i know we had lo- so much so much news maybe we can revisit some of our other news next time if it's uh not yes. too old yeah um good. can talk about loads yeah. of stuff we haven't talked about any of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah wicked all right well uh as is always the case let us know what you think everybody on our community go and check it out and it's good to be back and chatting to you all um Anything that you guys want to share other than thanking the wonder and the power that is Marius Quarbeck before we drop off? No, I was I was going to say we must um, thank Marius, our audio producer um, from nerdzoom.media, because he's cool and he does a lot of work. Cheers. He does. And yeah, I think that's it, right? We're good. All right, fuck off. See you soon. <laughs> See ya. For reference, it is show 47, whoever's introducing. Okay. Okay. Are we doing this in one one wicked take? I th- yeah. I think so. We haven't we haven't got separate segments. So Yeah. Who who wants the intro? Jono. Alright, boom. Show forty seven. <laughs> it's that easy. Love the energy. Alright, there we go. It is. <laughs> Fucking delegation right there. <laughs> delegation, it's what you need. Uh, so. <laughs> 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 All right.